Uh, Matthew chapter 5, this uh, particular passage has been sticking in my brain for a little bit, so I figured it was time to let all those thoughts kind of get out, and uh, this is how we can do that. (laughs) Uh, So Matthew chapter 5, this is the distinctive, I would say, passage that separates Matthew from the other Gospels, Uh, namely the fact that it includes this sermon, the, the sermon you would know as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and includes this sermon in its fullest form, whereas some of the bits and portions of this sermon appear in the Gospels of Mark and, uh, and Luke. Uh, here, Matthew gives it to us in its complete version, uh, 100 verses, over 100 verses, covering three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, all dedicated to this one discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we are, you're probably familiar with a lot of the verses that come from this sermon. A lot more than perhaps you maybe even think that you're familiar with. Uh, from the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, with all of those very famous sayings about those who are blessed in the kingdom of God. From the end of chapter 5 where Jesus talks about loving your neighbor. Uh, then to, uh, to chapter 6 where Jesus uh, details the Lord's prayer and, and how his disciples are to pray. The, all the way to the end of chapter 7 where we have that very famous parable of the two builders. One building his house upon the sand and the other building his house upon the rock. There is lots here in this sermon. Lots to cover. Lots that we can go into. The Sermon on the Mount, I would say, all of it reveals what living and what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And in fact, that little phrase, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, is is very often repeated, not just throughout uh, the Gospel of Matthew, but especially in this sermon. And though despite how... Popular, I should say, or familiar this sermon is in in churches. Uh, uh, That is not to say that everyone agrees on how we ought to read it and interpret it. And in fact, uh, there are over half a dozen opinions on the way we should understand exactly what Jesus is saying and doing through this particular sermon. And I think that's because uh, most of what Jesus is saying here is... Is so in line with what was the common notions of religion in that day. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. And I say that only too because uh, the the tenor, the tone of the sermon is is very uh, moralistic we could say. It's very uh, perhaps uh, honoring and and venerating the, the ethics of religion. In terms of how you are to view yourself in line with the law. It almost seems as though as Jesus is preaching, as Jesus is speaking these words, he's giving everyone a little bit of a clue on how to to make it. how How to get entrance into that kingdom. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, if if heaven is what you're after, here's what's required. Here's what you have to quote, do. As if this righteousness that is required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, as he's going to make evident, is a human possibility. By the way, secret, it's not. 
It's not possible. And I think such are the, the elements which make this sermon a little bit clouded, a little bit uh, somewhat uh, uh, sort of shrouded in this, this legacy of conditional language, as though Jesus is speaking all in conditions. So to understand this sermon, and we're just going to sort of overview it, but hone in on those verses that Pastor Nathan read a little bit ago. This sermon, we have to understand its essential premise. As Jesus is here with his disciples on the side of the mount, he is almost, not verbatim, but almost he's giving a, a commentary of sorts, we could say, on the Ten Commandments. If you read chapters 5 through 7, that's essentially what he's doing. He's going through uh, the Old Testament law, specifically the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. You know, don't curse, don't skip church, don't disobey your parents, uh, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't be jealous, and don't be promiscuous. Those things. <laughs> he, he's sort of going through those, and he's almost giving uh, sort of his sermon on that passage. Maybe... You remembered those from your days in Sunday school, <laughs> reciting the Ten Commandments. On, and, and maybe you were taught that every good little boy and girl does their best to keep those Ten Commandments. And how often have you kept them to the fullest degree of what they call for? I want to show you this morning that I think you could, would have to say you've never, I've never... <laughs> And I think that's essentially the point of what Jesus is going to do through this sermon. That all of those things that you're so familiar with in terms of what is considered righteous and religious, no one has ever kept them. No one has ever kept those ordinances and demands in terms of what actually means to fulfill them. And I think throughout the course of this, he wants to raise everyone's eyebrows to see that keeping these laws is not just a matter of good versus bad. It's a matter of eternal life versus eternal death. He wants to raise the stakes so we see how serious it is when it comes to this matter of righteousness which earns, which actually garners entry into the kingdom of heaven. It's a lot more serious than we know. And that's exactly what he's going to do throughout the course of this sermon. But let's just go quickly as we, as we seek to uh, sort of identify the sermon into four distinct little vignettes, we could say. Or at least these verses. I want us to first of all see how Jesus sort of responds to some rumors that had swirled around him. So he, he begins the sermon in verse 3, uh, going through the Beatitudes. And he examines those and he uh, preaches about those for a moment. And then he begins his examination of the law in verse 17. He begins to sort of refute the rumors that had already been circulating about what this Jesus of Nazareth, this new teacher on the street is supposedly preaching. Notice he says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Very early, uh, actually this is chapter 5, in chapter 3 at the end is Jesus' baptism which precedes his public entry into ministry. So his ministry is, is still, we could say, in its infancy and already there were rumors being spread about what he was saying and doing. He was being misrepresented in the public eye from the very get-go. 
Misleading reports about what this Jesus guy, this, this Galilean preacher, what he's doing. He's building some buzz, so to speak, by healing people from all sorts, from all backgrounds, and all these various regions. Actually, look at chapter 4, verse 25. It says that, and there followed him great multitudes of people. From Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. He's gaining notoriety. He's gaining a lot of people who are coming to follow him and and see what this, this Jesus of Nazareth guy is all about. From the beginning, he's made it very clear that his message is a message of the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 17. It's almost the same as Mark chapter 1, verse 9, where he, where he talks about, this is my message. My message is what? Matthew four seventeen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Talking about the kingdom. And yet, if you look at how Jesus was viewed, he was often seen fellowshipping with sinners. Eating, eating dinners with some people that were considered social pariahs, off limits, that, that those, uh, they are not allowed to be fellowshipping with the likes of someone who's considered to be a teacher, someone who is considered to be one who expounded the law of Moses. How are you eating with those people? Again, this was one of the, 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 the very early uh, sort of things that rubbed the Pharisees the wrong way, which we'll get to them in a moment. But even if you think about it, even more than just his having a drink and a a meal with these who are considered sinners, tax collectors and sinners as the, as the, as the, the jibe goes. He also calls a tax collector to be a member of his inner circle. The guy who is writing this very book in front of you, Matthew, formerly Levi. He calls him to be a part of his group of disciples. Think about the audacity of that. He doesn't just eat with them. He actually has one of them to be a part of his inner group. Jesus was seen now as this sort of troublemaking teacher. We should avoid that guy. This Nazareth preacher. Up to this point, Jesus is... uh, message didn't match up with what that message was thought to be about. He's talking about the kingdom and look at all these sinners he's hanging around. Look at all these people that he's fellowshipping with. And such was the opinion of the Pharisees. Now, quickly, a quick note. I think we have a tendency, and I am so guilty of this, so maybe it's just me and you can be holier than me. I have a tendency to demonize the Pharisees. As though these guys, these, these group of religious gentlemen in the, the, the first century were a group of almost heretical biblical apostates. That they just preached so much different than all of us. They're almost like the proverbial other uh, outside of the church. And we can almost make them into being sort of like the villains. You know, every good Disney movie has a villain even though it doesn't need one. There's always a person that you want to not like. And for whatever reason, especially in the Gospels, the villains of the Gospels are almost these Pharisees. Where we look at them and we almost assume so much about them. And I think a better way to read it is to read ourselves into the Pharisees. To see ourselves and how they were thinking. 
Because they weren't, they weren't a group of heretics. They were a group of very devout religious men who sought to uphold the heritage of Jewish faith and practice. Especially during the years when it was almost totally snuffed out. Remember the Pharisees were a very ordered group of religious experts, so to speak, who rose to, to prominence, to, to sort of popularity uh, during the, the intertestamental period. That 400 year block between the Old and the New Testaments. That's when they sort of came to be sort of following in the line of the prophetic scribe Ezra. These Pharisees sort of took up the charge, so to speak, to uphold this religious fervor. For the things of Judaism. They eventually then become these authorities on all matters of religion and faith and piety. They were the quote experts. Again, they did this. uh, They initially began this order out of a very devout reason. And almost becomes something other than what it began as. So you have to see, as these guys are upholding the religion of Jehovah as they see it, here comes this Jesus guy, this Jesus who's hanging out with sinners, doing things on the Sabbath. How dare he do that? He's almost coming with this anti-Moses message. He's doing things against which they have built their whole platform on upholding. You can sort of see why this Jesus guy is is rubbing them the wrong way. He's constantly talking about love and mercy and forgiveness. And he's not talking about how we're supposed to uphold the the commands and demands of the law on the Sabbath. He seems to be preaching against the law. Such as what many rumored Jesus was all about. He was not about the law. He was actually just about free love and forgiveness and all these sorts of things. And again, Jesus is here uh, reprimanding such notions very strongly. Verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. I'm not come to dissolve it. I'm not come to destroy it. Actually, as he says, or the prophets, I'm not come to do any of such things. I've come to fulfill it. Which in their minds must have been very shocking. Again, to many that perhaps who had believed the rumors, they would be like, oh man, I thought this guy was different. But again, he's coming and almost aligning himself with much of what the Pharisees would have been in agreement with. He's coming to fulfill the law. Amen. He was not about to deconstruct the Old Testament views of righteousness. Actually, he does just the opposite of that. Because notice what he does next. He doesn't just refute all these rumors that were swirling about them. Notice, secondly, he reinforces all of the regulations that were uh, in the law itself. Notice verse 18. For verily, truly, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Instead, and rather totally opposite from destroying or dissolving any amount of this law by which men viewed themselves as religious and righteous, actually says all of it matters, all of it, from the very smallest letter to the smallest stroke of that letter, all of that must be maintained. All of that must be completed. This is what Jesus is preaching now. 
And he's, he, and he's using that phrase, verily, of a truth. He's almost sort of staking his ministerial reputation on this very statement. Of a truth, I tell you, this is how we ought to view this. Not one, we could say it in our vernacular. In the Hebrew, letters are, are much more intricate. So a, a jot, as it is in the King James, is that smallest letter. And the tittle is almost like a little stroke of that letter. If you can imagine... Uh, <laughs> Natalie knows this. I'm sort of a, this is side, sidebar, side note. I'm sort of like a, a nerd for fonts. You know, like a good font. You know, a good font can really d- display a message. I know everyone's laughing, it's okay. Um, I love a good font. And actually there's a lots of different uh, uh, types of fonts. And they mean and communicate different things. You know, there's a sans serif font. Like the font that's up on the outline right up there. It has no little markings at the ends of the letters. Or if you are familiar with the font Times New Roman, that's a serif font. So it has all those little, little marks at the ends of letters. You know, I'm, getting, I'm losing a lot of you. I'm sorry. But anyways, that's essentially what Jesus is saying. See, I'm, I'm like Jesus. He loves fonts too. Um, anyways, this is what he's saying. That not even the smallest letter or even the smallest little stroke of that letter is going to pass away till all of this be completed, brought to fulfillment. That's how intricate and deep this law goes. Not one dot of an I or one cross of a T. All of it must be completed. And you can see what Jesus is here saying. That, that those who wish to live in eternity in heaven must carry out all of those minute intricacies of the law. No compromising. No, no trying to make it a little bit easier. All of that has to be carried out. And in fact, he doubles down on such a notion in verse 19 where he says, If you diminish this law by even a single degree, you are worthy of the judgment. Whereas, or excuse me, verse 19, whosoever therefore shall break, that is, diminish, lessen, undo one of the least commandments and shall teach men also, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. No one was free to break these commands and not just break or loosen or make them a little bit easier. If you taught them, you were worthy of even greater judgment. No shortcuts. The law of Moses, Jesus is saying, has, has no shortcuts to its completion, to its fulfillment. You can see Jesus is here speaking so in line with what many thought was true and holy and just and right. This teaching wasn't at all meant to dissolve the law. It wasn't at all meant to destroy how men thought they could be deemed and claim that righteousness that granted them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, up to this point in the sermon, we could say that Jesus has... Uh, Delivered a message that is so familiar with the messages of the Pharisees. He's upholding the traditions. And speaking such that he is emphasizing conformity to the will of God. That all that you are about must be conformed to this precise message and standard and rubric. This is how you are judged righteous. That you do these things. 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Very much in keeping with those uh, lawyers of the Mosaic law. But here, Jesus does something even just a little bit different. He, he goes from refuting all those rumors to reinforcing what everyone thought they already knew about religion. To now he's going to say something that is totally radical that just blows everyone's minds. By now, we should say this, that Jesus has probably successfully uh, rebuffed any notion that he is against the law. He's in two verses, he's, he's squandered that sort of view. And his sermon hasn't sounded at all like what the gossip said that this Jesus guy was about. There's been no talk of free forgiveness. There's been no talk of anything like that. Actually, all of his words have sought to emphasize religion and virtue and piety and those such things. And the crowd, the multitude as it calls them in verse 1, is, is, is likely sort of, perhaps they were uncomfortable with how rigid this law is, but they're not sort of surprised. Again, he's not preaching anything different than what the Pharisees were preaching. And in fact, I imagine them saying a few amens during Jesus' sermon so far. Amen, Jesus. You're speaking our language. And then all of that stops with verse 20. Well, let's back up. Look at verse 19 again. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then here's where he raises and he takes it up a notch. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. I imagine... I imagine when Jesus is preaching, he, he just pauses on that moment. There's a, there's a deathly silent moment that happens after that statement. So, yeah, he's pausing for dramatic effect, but he's pausing to let what he just said sink in. Unless you are holier than the guys who are experts on the holiness of the law, you have no, no even a thought or a hope or a prayer of getting into the kingdom of heaven. You, you can't get in at all. And think about what he's saying. I, I, I imagine everyone, as they realize what Jesus has just said, they start asking themselves, talking, whispering to another. A low murmur sort of emerges across the crowds. Did he say what I think he just said? Did he really just say that? And everyone is shocked. That... The righteousness that is required by Moses, that's not enough. (laughs) Suddenly, the crowd is devastated. They're utterly defeated to the core of their being by these words. Except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have no way, no case of entering into this kingdom. The kingdom that I'm preaching, by the way. If the righteousness of these religious elitists, if that, if that wasn't even enough to garner entry, what hope did shepherds have? What hope did fishermen have? What hope did the handmaids have of this day and age? What hope did anyone have if they didn't have hope? 
If they couldn't get in with all of their religious zeal and fervor that just oozed out of the Pharisees, what hope did the common religious practitioner have of ever making it into this kingdom at all? And Jesus rightly leaves that moment and he then proceeds in verses 21 through the end of this particular chapter, chapter 5, to emphasize and stress every point of the law. Every single point. It actually is greatly more intense than you could ever possibly realize. In verses 21 and 22, he says to, to fulfill the righteousness of the law, it's not just about not killing your brother. It's about never being angry with them. It's, it's in verses 27 and 28. It's not about just not actually physically sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. It's actually to fulfill the righteousness of the law. It's about never lusting ever. And, and at the end of the whole discourse in chapter, or in chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, he says it's not just about loving your neighbor. It's about loving your enemies too. Going the proverbial second mile for the people that you hate. Think about what he has just done. <laughs> He's raised everyone's thoughts about how to fulfill this law to degrees that they know in the core of their being that they can't meet. And then he ends it off in verse 48 with this amazing statement. To sum it up, Jesus is basically saying, be therefore perfect. Even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. You want to get in? This is how you get in. You want to get into the kingdom of heaven? Here's all you have to do. Be perfect. Oh, is that all? Jesus now has... You know, I imagine... Going back to the crowd. If, if they weren't demoralized before... I imagine as Jesus leaves that verse to itself... They are very much decimated... All of the measurements by which man thought of himself as religious and righteous. They were so far above and beyond what they thought. This law was way more strict. Way more stringent than anyone knew. It wasn't just about trying to live righteously. It was unbroken righteousness. No little deviations from its requirements was allowed. And the rhetorical question after chapter 5 is, who can manage that? (laughs) This is a, a harsh word of the Lord, I think, in and of itself. But I think that harshness, that coarseness, that, that this sermon everywhere portends is exactly the point. This is the point of this whole sermon is that life, according to, to quote, the letter of the law is not just difficult, it's impossible. Life, according to the letter of the law, we should say it even more specifically, eternal life, according to the letter of the law, is impossible for anyone to realize. He's not just about reinforcing what the law required. He wanted to intensify what everyone's views were of that law itself. There's no, there's no uh, pass grade given for effort. 
Like when I was young and you competed and you would get a participation ribbon. There's, there's no participation ribbon for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Just being good and trying. The righteousness of this kingdom is not graded on a curve. Where, where, where Jesus is the proverbial straight A student who comes to make up for your pitiful grade to allow the heavenly teacher to readjust everyone's grades according to his straight A grade. A new standard. That's not what Jesus is saying is happening. He, that's not what he has come to be about. That's decidedly not the gospel. It's not a lowering of any standard at all. Again, he says, I haven't come to dissolve, to diminish, to destroy, to do any of that to this law. I have come to fulfill. Again, these heavy-handed words of Christ are the point. You could say to use some of Jesus' words just prior to verse 17. He meant to add a little, I should say, a lot of salt to the law. He's salting the law to make everyone see that they can't perform it. They can't execute it. They can't live it out in themselves. They can't make themselves right with God. They can't do this. No one's pulling it off, Jesus is essentially saying. It's a very... Sermon that leaves you with no, no hope, seemingly. But again, this is, I think, what Jesus is aiming to do. To readjust how we think about the righteousness of law so we can actually realize what our redemption is all about. Because this is what's veiled, I would say, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Is this veiled gospel of the gospel of fulfillment. That Jesus is coming to do exactly all of these things. And in fact, at the end of his whole entire sermon, at chapter 7. He, he basically is, is using different analogies of this you know, path, this narrow road and this wide road. And then the two construction workers who are building houses. One on the sand and one on the rock. He's basically leaving everyone with two options. Two options. To live up to this fulfillment. He says, you can basically this, we could summarize this sermon this way. You can carry on assuming that the righteousness of the law is something that you have the ability to fulfill. That you have the ability to meet it in every single little point. All of the smallest letters you can complete down to the tiniest stroke. It, you can leave with that being your assumption. Or... You can surrender, relinquish any such aspiration in the knowledge that the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven has already been fulfilled. So either there's a righteousness that you can achieve or a righteousness that has been achieved already. Those are the options. Those are the options left after this sermon. And in fact, those are the only options that have ever been on the table. Either you believe in yourself, in your own competence to successfully bring about what's required here, as Jesus has everywhere sought to emphasize, or you realize that it's impossible. And that barring some unforeseen miracle, you're never getting in. You're never making it. I'm reminded here of one of my favorite theologians, Martin Luther. 
You're perhaps familiar with his 95 Theses of 1517, which sparked as usually the date many mark as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago now. But even more important than those 95 theses that he nailed to that door at the Church of Wittenberg in order to spark theological debate are actually 28 theses that he writes just a few months later in 1518. This happens as much fervor and rumors, similar to a character we've just been reading about, are spreading about who this Luther guy is. And so here he's at Heidelberg, and he writes these 28 theses sort of to dispute and debate uh, with the theological scholars of the day. And this is commonly what we know now as the Heidelberg Disputation, which is a, a series of statements and explanations that more further develop Luther's theology of how righteousness is acquired. In Thesis 18, notice what he says. It is certain That man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. He continues, he is not righteous who does much. But he who without work believes much in Christ. For the righteousness of God is not acquired by means of acts frequently repeated. But it is imparted by faith. This is Luther's stand. You have to utterly despair of any ability that you have or that you think you have in yourself of ever meeting these fulfillments, these requirements. And you actually have to just believe that Christ has already done it. This is, I think, a profound and problematic assertion. Profound because I think it points to the gospel that Jesus was preaching. But it's problematic because it rubs us the wrong way. We are born self-saviors. We can achieve it. We can do it. And then when we're confronted with this law of perfection, we know we can't do squat against it. This law is not just requiring goodness, but perfection. 100%, righteousness. That's what's required. Even the best of us would have to admit that that's not very possible. And that, that doesn't jive with how we were born. We're the saviors. We're the ones who can make it. We can overcome all sorts of odds. We are the ones who have abilities to do what we think is right and true and just and holy and good. So therefore, in order to... In our self-saving minds, in order to make this law doable, we lessen what it requires. Essentially, through this sermon, that's what Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of doing. You've added to the regulations, but you've also lessened what it means to be holy. This is Jesus' assertion. Through this sermon, you've made the righteousness of the law keepable. By just doing a certain number of things on the Sabbath or not doing a certain number of things on the Sabbath. But in response to this, both Christ and Luther, I think, would say the same thing. You want to be clued in on the perfect life? You want the secret to righteousness? Give up. Surrender. Admit that you can't do it. Declare your spiritual bankruptcy because that's the only way. 
Admit that you are bankrupt before this law which demands righteousness as a fulfillment, as a bar of entry into the kingdom. And this is what makes this gospel so offensive. How dare he say that we can't do it. It's insulting. But before this standard, everyone who has ever lived, has been utterly powerless. We are all condemned. Our sin nature damns us. We cannot perform the righteousness of the law. It's never been within our ability. It's never been within our grasp. And we come into this world born sinners. Sinners that have been sinning from the fall. We are born into this life on the precipice of eternal ruin. Barring some unforeseen miracle. Enter the gospel. Because the gospel is what? What Jesus Christ has been preaching. It's a preaching of the kingdom of Christ. Which has in its heart the miracle of a fulfilled law. A law that is completed. A law that is carried out. A law, dare I say, that is finished. This is what Jesus was doing by his life and resurrection, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He was completing all righteousness. Yours and mine. The righteousness that you and I don't have any ability to carry out. This is what he was doing. This is the whole purpose of his coming. The whole reason of his appearance on this earth is this precise reason. Fulfilling the righteousness of the law. Upholding his heavenly father's holy standard. And making way for veritably unholy people to be made holy. By his precise taking of their death. This is the the amazing thing about the incarnation. And in fact when Jesus says think not that I am come. That word come there C-O-M-E means appearance or arrival. It actually means to sort of hint at the incarnation. This is the reason why he is here. Fulfillment. Sometimes living righteously is viewed as something we Can realize something we can maintain and carry out. If just we have the proper amount of information. Or the right amount of motivation. We can do it. I just need to be motivated in the right way. Or I just need to know the steps. And I think this is the way that the Pharisees operated. That righteousness was a matter of fulfilling certain steps. But then when certain variables came about, they had to add sub-steps and sub-steps to achieve that first step. For them, this demand of holiness for the Pharisees, and I would say often for us, it was achievable. Because they had less of the law to something keepable. But in that, when Jesus comes preaching grace... It it is suddenly so overwhelming. And for them they have to reorient what that means. This idea of favor. For them this grace was nothing more than just a plaster from heaven. That filled in the gaps of their already righteous lives. 
You can see how demeaning that would be for a God who comes and says, I am the God of all grace. And actually to declare that, as the Pharisees perhaps did, was nothing but an utter denial of what Jesus was aiming to do. Because I think what we see throughout this sermon and throughout Jesus' whole gospel ministry is that he wasn't some heaven-sent mason who comes to, to, to apply this divine cement in our already ordered lives. Jesus is heaven's incendiary who comes to demolish any certain form where we believe we are fulfilling the righteousness of the law in ourselves. He comes to demolish that, to drop an H-bomb on the idea that we can fulfill this righteousness that's required. He says, not possible. No one's keeping it. No one's living up to it. Except me. Jesus is the one that lives up to this standard, this standard completely, not a diminished one, not a a smaller one. All the way, he lives up to this specific standard of righteousness. And this specific standard of righteousness is what is given to you by faith. This is the gospel. The good news of a fulfilled law, it culminates at that cross on the Mount of Calvary where this Jesus comes and accomplishes that which we could never accomplish in ourselves by precisely bearing what we deserved, we deserve to bear in and of ourselves. That punishment of the cross, that place where divine wrath and judgment was poured out on sin. He took that. He steps in our place and takes that and thereby realizes this redemption for sinners. Because he says it is complete. Or more accurately from the gospel of John. It is finished. That was his cry as he bled out from that cross. And as his blood mixes with the mud at the base of Golgotha's cross. All righteousness was completed, finished and fulfilled. It was there said and done. This is our hope. This is the truth that we everywhere proclaim. The truth of a fulfilled law by someone who stood in our stead. From the great hymn writer Philip Bliss, he says, Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission, cursed by the law and bruised by the fall. Grace hath redeemed us once for all. This is what he has done. This was Jesus' mission. And therefore we could apply the same sort of conclusion that Jesus comes to, to us today. That faith, faith in this gospel is not motivation to live the righteous life. It's the belief that the righteous life has been completed on your behalf. That's the bed of rock from chapter 7 that the the wise man builds his house on. 
This is the life of faith that we have been called to. A life that has been eternally settled by something that's been already finished. To disbelieve in this gospel truth, I would say, is like building your life on quicksand. Such as what I would say is is a belief that your religious performances can carry out what this law requires. I can do it if I can just try enough. If I can just do enough things. If I can just perform a little bit better. That's quicksand. You'll sink and your house will fall. Your faith will fracture. A faith that can withstand all of the seasons of life. The torrents of temptation and the changing of the seasons. Is a faith that's built on something permanent. Not you. Not your measure of goodness. It's the measure of perfection that Jesus established when he died on the cross. That's the rock. The rock that allows your faith to withstand the winds and the waves and the storms of anything that this life holds. So where are you building your faith this morning? Or I should say, on who are you building your faith this morning? On your ability to carry out what the law requires or on what Jesus has already fulfilled. One is quicksand. One is rock. For me, it's nothing but the solid rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the gospel of fulfillment. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.